Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. We are thankful to uh, serve together, and I look at the, at the front row here, and I see Dr. Aiken, Dr. Shaddix, and Dr. Marita, and I say, we are brothers, and we have uh, delighted to serve the Lord together in various places. Dr. Marita, we've actually had at our church as well, so we have appreciated each other, served the Lord together, and are brothers in the great calling we have of making the Lord known, and particularly the Lord in all the scriptures, who is the Christ who redeems by his grace and never by our works. And that message is the one that pervades the scriptures. And I want to take you to that message today as well as you look in your Bibles at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 as we will look at the first 13 verses. In doing so, just to remind you that Israel is ready to go into the promised land again. They have been here before, 40 years previous, now ready again, almost. Here's what happens. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished with our brothers, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their livestock and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them, he showed himself holy. Let's pray together. Father, we would, with trembling, ask that you would show yourself holy even to us this day, recognizing that to do so you must humble us, and as you exalt yourself, to turn our eyes and our hearts to you. May we, because of what we see in your word, be dependent upon the one who provided our Savior. We need you. And we confess that now, even as we turn to your word. Bless us through it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon had just gone exceedingly well. I mean, as the pastor, who will remain unnamed shook hands at the door afterwards, not only did he know it had gone well, I mean the entire congregation knew it had gone well. They congratulated, they complimented, they shook his hand with enthusiasm. And as he reflected upon what had just happened, even he marveled at how well it had gone. I mean, in the exegesis, he had discovered the meaning of a Greek verb not even mentioned by his professors in seminary. The illustrations, the illustrations had been as varied as a reflection upon the locking mechanism of Skylab and the martyrdom of a Puritan. And the applications, the applications were so poignant that even the engineers in the congregation got misty-eyed. I mean, it was a fantastic sermon The sun was shining. The choir had sparkled. It was a great day. And he just kind of basked in the glory of it on the way home, driving and thinking of the glory of the message until he began to recognize that that someone had not added her compliment to the mix yet. And it just began to niggle at him, to to, to work on him. She hadn't complimented him yet. Now, you couldn't just come out and ask for a compliment. That, That would be unseemly, if not maybe even unspiritual. And so he decided he would help her. And so he asked his wife this question as they were driving home. He said, honey, how many really great preachers do you imagine there are in the world today? (laughs) And uh, she did not acknowledge the question. She continued to look out the window, and they kept driving, and he thought, you know, she is just overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the message, too. (laughs) And so 
just to help her again, he, he asked the question again, sweetie, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in the world today? And then she answered, and she said, one less than you're thinking. You know, it is actually scary to recognize how easy it is in the very act of seeking to glorify God to turn the focus unto the glory of ourselves. The line between worship and idolatry is remarkably thin. And if there's anything to learn in this passage about Moses, it's to remind us from the man who at one point would say he was the humblest on the face of the earth, that it is absolutely impossible to obey God and be God at the same moment. It's a hard passage to read because you recognize here is a faithful servant of God who makes a mistake whose magnitude is so great that he is denied entry into the promised land with the people that he has led for now two generations. And you think, what, what did he do that was so wrong that would warrant that kind of judgment? I mean, after all, it's far easier to see what the people do that is wrong. If you will, I mean, as Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again, right? Forty years previous, their forefathers had camped on the banks of the Jordan. And when the spies went into the land and came back with a message, yeah, there are great cities there, but there are really great people too. We will look like grasshoppers before them. And so the people turned away from their calling, and they have wandered in the desert for 40 years. Now they come back, they're ready to go in again, and they repeat the very words of their forefathers. There's no water here. This is scary. This is hard. It would have been better for us to have stayed back in Egypt. They complain. They attack. And it's precisely what their forefathers did. And the opening verse, whose words go by so quickly, and Miriam died there and was buried there, is reminding us that even though a previous generation that sinned is now past, represented by Miriam, the present generation is on exactly the same path. It's easy to see what the people do wrong. And it's easy to see at the very same moment what Moses does that is so right. I mean, if you were to take a, a chapter out of the Bible and say, here's a wonderful expression of biblical leadership. This would be a great John Maxwell seminar, right? Here's biblical leadership on display for us. What does it look like? Here is Moses who's being attacked, who has led so faithfully and well. And as the people attack him, what does he do? Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Moses, who is being attacked by the very people he has served, begins to intercede for the people. He prays in their behalf before the God of glory who there is appearing before him before the tent of meeting and Moses falls on his face and begins to plead with God for his mercy, his provision for these people. It's a, it's a tremendous lesson in biblical leadership. They grumble 
The leader humbles himself in behalf of the people. Hard to do. When you're being attacked, when you're being blamed, to say, the very people who are after me, I seek the Lord's face in their behalf. I think of my own experience even this past week, the wonderfully capable woman in our congregation, vice president of a national organization, and yet so critical of things not happening the way she wishes in a particular department of our church, coming and complaining, being, being that, that, that dripping faucet in the church. And it's so easy for me to just become enraged. And then to turn to a passage of Scripture and say, but have I prayed for her? To lead God's people is to be a first intercessor. Before they do it, we do it. We intercede in their behalf. In order to do that, you have to recognize the difficulty of it by reading the verses of 2 through 5. The people ascended themselves together against Moses. Verse 3, the people quarreled with Moses. Verse 4, they blamed, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Verse 5, worst of all, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? In order for Moses to intercede, he must actually forgive these people for what they are saying to him and saying about him. You heard us. You brought us to this evil place. It's your fault that we are in this place. I would love to tell you that this is rare, this, this doesn't happen, but, but any of you who have read Paul Tripp's Dangerous Calling, you recognize that to assume to be a leader of God's people is to at some point be the object of those who are disenchanted, disenfranchised, and just miserable inside. And their, their readiness to attack people who have served them will astound you. To say it is par for the course to know betrayal and ridicule and lies to and about you. It, it's, it's the normal order of things because you're a fallen creature and the people that you serve are fallen as well. And to just say it, it happens. You can be the church planter who has had the, the wonderful experience of getting a people started and off to a, a wonderful running start and the church is prospering and then have the very leaders that you have brought on board begin to say, you know, you're not actually gifted for this stage of our church. We need you to move on. You can have sacrificed as a Sunday school teacher for the children who are so so struggling and, and deal with particularly difficult children with patience and mercy and kindness and then have a parent come to you and say, you know, until my child got in your class, they liked coming to Sunday school. It's your fault. You're to blame. And then to say to yourself, if you cannot forgive God's people, you cannot lead them. If you cannot learn to say, it's unfair, it's not right, it hurts me, but I forgive you and I intercede in your behalf, you just can't get back up there and teach and preach and counsel if you cannot forgive people. If you cannot forgive, you cannot lead. Moses shows us what it is to intercede and to forgive. 
And finally, what it is to risk in behalf of God's people. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. (laughs) Well, that's not very politic. I mean, that's not the way to win friends and influence people. I mean, he just names the sin the sin. You are rebelling, and so I call you rebels. I identify the wrong for what it is. In this case, he is not just becoming a first interceder, a first forgiver. He is a first risker. He puts himself on the line for their sake. He says what he knows will get them in, him in trouble with them for their sake. He identifies the wrong. He puts himself at risk for the people of God. It is our calling. I remember being in your position some years ago and, and hearing a pastor come and say something that I, I had to check for a moment and say, do I actually believe that? And he said that the temptation always in the ministry is to, is to kind of pull the punch, particularly if it puts us at risk to, to not say what has to be said, but to say you must know that those people in whom the Spirit of God dwells are actually desiring to be confronted They actually desire to be challenged. Now the reality is there are those in whom the Spirit is not active and they hate being confronted and challenged. And they exist together in our churches. So to actually say what needs to be said is always putting ourselves at risk. And yet if we are called by God to lead God's people, we are those first intercessors and we are those first forgivers and we're even the first riskers. I think of one of my very dear friends who was called to a church in our town. And when he came as the new pastor, one of the early things that he had to deal was just to kind of deal with the leadership of that church. And it came the time for the elder elections, and a man who was in the church, powerful and affluent, took him to lunch. And as they got back to the church, and the man let the pastor out of the car to go back to the church office, The man asked my friend, so are you going to support me for elder? And my friend sat back down in the front seat and looked at the powerful and affluent man in his church and said, until things are right between you and your wife, you should not be an elder of this church. risk for the sake of the integrity of the gospel the testimony of the church I put myself at risk for your sake for Christ's sake for the church's sake all this Moses does it's wonderful it's tremendous it's a model of biblical leadership so what does he do that's so wrong that gets him in so much trouble when so much is right on the page that he does To figure out what's wrong, you have to look at the very specific instruction that God gives Moses, verse 8. Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Okay, do you got the picture? Take the staff, representing the authority of God, and speak to the rock. What does Moses actually do? Verse 10, 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Words God had never told him to say. These are not the words God has instructed his prophet to give. They are substitute words. They are Moses' own words out of Moses' own heart and his own ire and his own hurt. He is a prophet of God who is speaking not God's words, but Moses' words. And those substitute words make him a prophet of himself rather than of God. And that's not all that happens. Verse 8 again, take the staff, a symbol of the congregation, you and Aaron, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. You speak to the rock, but what happens? Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock twice. Now, somewhere in your brain you're going, no, wait, 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 what? Not only is that really wrong, but somewhere in the Bible, doesn't God tell Moses to strike the rock? I mean, and the answer is yes. Exodus 17, the previous generation, when they were at this spot, God said to Moses, then, Exodus 17, strike the rock when the people were complaining, when they said there is no water. We'd better be back in Egypt. How are we going to have survival here for ourselves or our cattle if there's no water? And God said to Moses, strike the rock. But before he said strike the rock, God said, Exodus 17, 6, I will stand before the rock. And while the language is difficult, we recognize that 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 wording of stand before is the Hebrew verbiage for the normal position of a servant before a master. God says to Moses, I'll provide for my people. I will stand before the rock in the position of a servant. And Moses, now you strike the rock. And if God were appearing before the rock as we know him in that time of Israel's history to appear in the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the fire by night, if the glory cloud is around the rock in the position of a servant and Moses strikes the rock, he must first strike his Lord who stands before the people in the position of a servant. If we can't see it, Surely the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11 where he said the rock was whom? Christ. How did he get that? The rock isn't named Christ, but here, here is the reality of a sovereign Lord in the position of his servant before his people, willing to humble himself for their sake. And that reality of God's gracious, redeeming presence being there for a people who deserve none of it is the reality that Moses is denying now. A generation later, when he strikes the rock in his own authority, in his own power, with no God before him, as if to say, I am now the mediator. I am now the provider. I'll make it right for you. In which case, he is not only his own prophet, he is his own priest 
the mediator between God and the people is now Moses. And he does it all, remember, with the staff that is taken before the presence of God that represents the authority of a sovereign God. He does it with that staff in his hand. He takes the authority of God upon himself in order to be their priest and to speak his own words. He gives himself the authority of the king of heaven. And in every measure now, he has identified himself as prophet, priest, and king. Him! Which is why God says, you did not declare me as holy before the people. I am separate, high and lifted up, the only holy one, separate from all others. And now you give yourself the status and the stature of God. Moses, that's not only not good for you, it's not good for my people. They can have no other gods before me. You cannot lead them into the promised land if you present yourself as their God. I only will redeem my people, and they cannot trust in you apart from me. And for that reason, God says, you cannot honor yourself as God and lead my people. What's so amazing to think about is, why did Moses do all that? It's important to learn. I mean, if there is this thin line between idolatry and worship, how do you cross the line? And probably some great hint of that is in the opening words again. The people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. It's just the reminder that a whole generation has passed. It's been 40 years. He gave up the royal court of Pharaoh. He gave up his career, he gave up his luxuries, he gave up his life, he has suffered for these people. It's been a long time. Moses is just tired. But that's not the end of it. Back in the 90s, there was a lot of study done by seminaries of why was it that a third of all seminarians who would graduate and would go into ministry, professional ministry, a third would leave the ministry within the first five years. Why why was that happening? We began to research it and study what was going on. And at the time, the the initial understanding was it's, it's just fatigue. I mean, there's so much for pastors to do. Large church, small church, there's so many expectations. The, the culture's going off the rails. It's no longer easy to be a pastor. There's, there's just so much to do. There's a pressure to live up to the TV images. There's a pressure to people come now switching denominations, to live up to other denomination standards, though you are pastoring according to the denomination of your own church. Expectations are high and diverse. You just can't satisfy everybody. But the more we studied, we began to recognize, actually, that's, that's not a very good explanation. Most people who go into ministry are highly committed. Most, when they're young, have high energy. Fatigue is not the only answer. The more we studied, the more we began to recognize the problem was not just fatigue. It's when you take fatigue and you combine it with anger that people leave the ministry. I have sacrificed for you and you would attack my spouse this way? I live sacrificially for you and you want, you want to pay me so little I can't even put my kids in college? I have done everything I know to do and you blame me. 
And when you combine anger with fatigue, terrible things happen. It's a check on our own hearts. When the psalmist looks at these words of Moses in the 106th Psalm, the psalmist simply says of Moses, he spoke rash words. He just got mad. And it's the reminder that the anger of man does not accomplish the purposes of God. If you take fatigue and you put anger with it, it's hugely destructive to the ability to minister. That's what happened. Okay, well, I kind of understand that. I, I, I actually maybe can forgive Moses for, for all that. So, so why didn't God? If you look for grace in this passage, it, it sometimes gets kind of hard. I mean, if you just kind of look at action-reaction, you, you'll, you'll see vindictiveness, it seems. But it's not there. Moses and the people terribly fail. And then there's verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out, what? Abundantly. Now wait, the people are complaining. Moses is rebelling. And what does God do in the light of all that? He blesses them abundantly. Now, what, what, what does this actually look like as God is blessing the people? I know because I've seen the pictures, and you have too, right? It's in all the Sunday school material, right? The water's coming out of the rock. The sheep are safely grazing. You know, there's a couple of camels in the background. Kids are playing around the rock. There's this little wonderful gentle stream coming out of the rock. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. Is that what happened? Just a quick reminder, 600,000 fighting men came out of Egypt. Assuming they have spouses, you're now well over a million people. Assuming they have children, you have several million people and haven't even counted grandma and grandpa yet. And by the way, three times repeated, and their cattle. I mean, you just in a desert environment, you, you just begin to count all those beings. If they just need a gallon of water a day, and in reality, they need much more. You are talking about multi-millions of gallons of water coming out. The people who actually analyze this saying there's roughly got to be, just, just to come out even, 5,000 gallons a minute coming out of that rock. This is not this little trickle coming. This is this bursting stream coming out as God blessed his people abundantly in the light of their sin, their rebellion, and their leader's failure. Is God gracious? He is abundantly merciful, maintaining his covenant faithfulness to a people who deserve none of it. But then, of course, there is Moses. Wait, wait, where, where, where is God's grace to Moses? Who is not allowed into the promised land. Um, when I and my siblings began to have children, we would still spend every Christmas at my parents in Memphis, Tennessee. And when we would go to my parents' house, get the kids off to bed, I and my siblings, there were six of us, you know, we would begin to tell stories, and the later it got, the looser our tongues would get. And sometimes we would regale each other with 
the misdeeds of our youth, the things we had done that we weren't supposed to have done. And my parents, aging, would kind of be off to the side, not playing the late night Monopoly game with us. And as we would begin to say what we had done, my mother would say, you did what? (laughs) But we could tell the stories then because we knew it was now all right. Who tells this awful story on Moses? Who rats on Moses? Who does? Who tells this story on Moses? Moses. You know, before he ever put pen to paper or, or stylus to papyrus, he recognized what would happen in this passage. He is confessing his failure. He is not just a first forgiver or a first intercessor, or even a first risker. He is a first repenter. He writes before the people and to all ages, I failed God, and God was faithful to his people. And there will come an age, described in Matthew 17, at which the Lord Jesus Christ will at the apex of that redemption history stand on a mountaintop, be engulfed in the clouds, and in that moment of transfiguration will have appearing with him Elijah and who? Moses. In the promised land. As God redeems and is faithful through the work of his son. You may very well fail in many ways. I have. You may very well know the ire of your people and respond as you wish and sometimes believe. You never could. Believe in a God who redeems a faithless people by a grace greater than they deserve. He is in all the scriptures unfolding a wonderful plan of salvation, but more than that, a wonderful heart for a people who need his grace. People like Israel people like Moses, like me, and like you. He is the God who redeems. Father, teach us your ways. We who wish to lead and have, who want to worship and find ourselves glorifying ourselves in ways we never thought we would, and find ourselves reacting in ways that we never thought we could. But you sent Jesus to make things right. Remind us of his work on the days that we desperately need it and the days that our people desperately need it. We praise you, God of our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at 
www.secbts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.